Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is really an exciting one. It's actually been a long time coming. Today, we're really going to get into brain health, chiropractic care, the role that the spine plays in brain health and in brain mastery, the role of inquiry, and also dig really deeply into assessment. We're going to dig into diagnostic assessment and really helping to try to find proper assessment, which in the medical space can be a very, very hard thing to do. And we're going to Obviously, along with this, like with many of our guests, we're going to talk about the role of resilience, the role of knowing your why to really fuel your inquiry and maintain your persistence. Of course, wrapped up in that will be a lot around service and doing good for others. So today's guest is a chiropractor who is both practicing in the United States and in Canada, in the United States, he's about an hour and a half north of Seattle and in Vancouver area. He's just south of Vancouver, about 45 minutes uh, south of Vancouver in a place called Langley. So we're very, very excited to welcome Dr. Sasha Blaskovich to the podcast. Sasha, thanks for joining us. Mark, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So for people that are listening out there, you know, Sasha, these are typically people that may have some exposure to concussion, to brain injury, or maybe just really passionate and interested in the topic, or maybe other medical professionals who are looking to learn and understand kind of better methods and innovative methods towards brain mastery and brain rehabilitation. Given your lens as a chiropractor, but really, I think in your case, a loaded term, because you do quite a bit maybe if you wouldn't mind for context, why don't you explain a little bit about your practice and what you do, and then we'll get into the main message a little bit following that. Sure, absolutely. I'm going on about 27 years of living in a state of permanent post-concussive syndrome. And in such, there was never a concrete diagnosis given to me when I had my injury and until I figured it out for myself, which probably dates back about 20 years ago. And so I've dedicated my career, my chiropractic career, to not being a a run-of-the-mill chiropractor. I've developed my own version of what chiropractic is to me, and it does involve a lot of diagnostic and objective measurement techniques and technology, in addition to what's readily available in the mainstream as far as diagnostic technology and different means that I would say I look at in a different way with a different light based on what I have and what I have researched and learned over the last 20 years with respect to this phenomenon. And so, you know, we term it concussion, but as mentioned, or as the title of the book that I wrote states is that there's a connection between concussion or or, uh, head trauma, brain trauma, and neck trauma. And because these traumatic events require momentum and have the, the need for a deceleration of that traumatic or injurious momentum, it's really hard even for a layperson to, if you present it to them in this way, to comprehend that a brain injury is an isolated phenomenon. And it proposes the the question and it poses the quandary of, 
Well, if all these different components are also moving and needing to be slowed down in a traumatic, you know, motion-related event, how can the brain be an isolated phenomenon in this pathology? And what else is involved here? What's in direct contact with that head? And that just so happens to be the neck and most importantly, the upper neck. So as the skull sits on the first cervical vertebra and then the first one on the second, and that's the most important spinal junction in our body as far as it relates to mechanics function, but also rigorous protection of the most important neurological structure in our body, which in my humble opinion, isn't the brain. It's actually the brainstem as it coordinates everything that has to do with the brain and everything that has to do with the body. So when you have injury to the upper neck, you're susceptible to having irritation or compression of the brainstem, which then discoordinates all the normal functioning of the brain and normal functioning of the body because you're not having that coherence in information transfer. For people that are listening, so here's somebody who, as one of my favorite authors says, her name's Brene Brown, and she's all about vulnerability, but also in especially around things that are innovative. She chooses to listen to the opinions of people who have been in the arena. And I think that's something that we just kind of have to be mindful of and respectful of with Dr. B here is that he's been in the arena, not just as a clinician for decades, but also as somebody who has been challenged by this condition. And I think that's something contextually that's really important to recognize as his lens, his dual lens into this work. If you look at me on most days, you see a normal individual, but if you communicate with the people that are close to me and around me, Mm. whether at home or at work, they can tell you that there are are moments throughout the year that it's not such a normal observation to see me because they can see this beat down and destroyed individual and that manifests the cumulative effects of this problem that unfortunately, because it's a dynamic region of the body, you're going to have moments where that dynamic nature causes exacerbations or flare-ups and then other times where you're able to mitigate that to a point where you actually do come across as being totally normal. And I think that's the biggest unfortunate disconnect for the majority of the medical community is that they deal with people like me as a patient who at any given moment when they have their you know prescribed appointment time may present as perfectly normal. And so it's really hard for clinicians to say to that individual or to report on that encounter as abnormal. And so a lot of unfortunate patients will slip through the cracks because they may be having a good day when they go to this appointment that they've been waiting on for sometimes months or years in hopes to get some sort of closure or some sort of guidance only to just get a door slammed in their face because they appear normal that day. And so this is where objective imaging, diagnostic imaging has to play a role because when you can discern that somebody has abnormal and pathological movement in regions where the number one job of that region is protection and not motion. When you have motion predominate, that then goes at the expense of the protection. And so, and again, I'm referring to the brainstem region in the upper cervical spine, because that seems to be the bottleneck of the problem that is being missed and sometimes even willfully neglected because it seems like such a vague and obscure phenomenon that isn't being taught in medical school. It's not being taught in chiropractic school. It's something that clinicians are noticing more and more. And thankfully, you know, I'm not the only one out there that's preaching this stuff or has been preaching this stuff, that the connection is starting to be made more and more globally where physicians are saying, you know, it seems like there's some cervical spine connection to this problem, this brain problem that you're presenting with. We want to try to get to the bottom of that from a different standpoint. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's something that when we think about the circuitry, really, and how the information is carried throughout the body, it's important to come back to and, and simplify it to recognize that surely there's a connection there. And something that you said to me that really stuck with me, that was I continue to find really interesting and fascinating is when we were talking about, you know, one particular injury that was very high profile a few years back, and people were struggling to figure out why this individual was continuing to have these problems after doing every different kind of available set of imaging and diagnostics. It took having more of a functional x-ray look at the upper cervical spine in order to better understand where that challenge was coming. Why don't you help us? I'm sure I didn't do a very good job explaining that, but why don't you explain for the audience there why imaging may be missing the boat here in some cases for people that present with these challenges? The biggest reason that the imaging is not showing evidence of pathologies because the imaging is being conducted in neutral anatomic stationary positioning, which one can understand, okay, that makes logical sense, but really what's being assessed with that type of imaging is anatomy. So do you have seven bones in your neck? Is there a fracture? Is there a dislocation? Is there signs of arthritis? And if you either have a minimal amount of that, they'll comment on it. Um, Or if you don't have anything, they'll comment on it as being normal. And when you're dealing with a dynamic region, you want to be able to try to assess it dynamically. A simple example is when a patient says to me, when I shoulder check the back out of a parking stall, I either get lightheaded during the process of looking back to make sure it's safe, or when I return back to neutral, I have this flush or this wave of lightheadedness that comes over me and then it stabilizes in 15, 20 seconds. And so when other clinicians hear patients say that, it's in one ear and out the other ear, kind of like, well, whatever the reason is, it's not serious because it doesn't last. And in my mind, it's probably one of the most telling things that a person can tell me that signifies the likelihood that they have an unstable upper neck because the job of C1, C2, which is where the majority of these serious problems exist in after injury, is a rotatory functional segment. And so when you position into a rotary position and you experience some sort of a neurological phenomenon, so this is not that they experience pain in that position, but that they get lightheaded or dizzy or nauseous Mm -hmm. and it comes in a wave or it subsides in a wave. And so this is something that tells me this person's neck needs to be assessed in those positions and to be able to observe them going in and out of those positions in real time to actually follow and see what the bones are doing with relation to each other as they undergo those movements. And this is something that is grossly missed when you statically position somebody in neutral anatomic position. And medicine needs to start, at least physical functional medicine needs to start assessing patients functionally. And that's what I've been focusing on for well over 20 years. And that's been proven time and time again in in our clinics that this is the missing piece of information that finally allows these chronic patients to have closure and answers as to what has been ailing them for the longest time. Because they may not per se display pain as their primary symptom. They could have a gamut of what you know get termed as dysautonomic symptom patterns. And autonomic basically means that the body's baseline background rest and digest and fight and flight system is a background system or two background systems that function without us consciously having to dictate anything that they do. 
And when you have these compressive forces at the brainstem, because the brainstem is the part of the spinal system or the, the neural system that houses the nerves that make up this autonomic nervous system. So when you have these mild compressive forces right on the brainstem, ligamentous laxity and instability of the vertebrae, that mild pressure ends up having an effect on these autonomic nerves. And a person will have a potential gamut of autonomic nerve dysfunction, which they, you know, in medicine term, dysautonomia or POTS is another good one where they can't be upright because they'll, you know, have heart palpitations mm-hmm. and things like that. And they're chronically fatigued and sore everywhere. And so these are common things that all relate back to the brainstem. And so functional imaging is, in my opinion, and and been in my experience over thousands of scans, is the missing link in these patients. Oh, that's so great. What was it like, I wonder, for you when you finally made this connection? Like, what was the feeling for you, given that you personally have had connection with some of this challenge, which I'm sure must have played a role in your persistence? But what was it like for you in that moment? Well, me as a person, like I said, who's been living with this, I would visit doctors and highly reputable specialists, and I would explain to them what I was feeling. Uh, for example, one of the most common things that I remember telling them at the, at the beginning after my injury was that I, I'd be laying on my side in bed, and I would be relaxed, and then I would just initiate the lifting of my head. So then you get these you know subtle shear movements mm-hmm. that happen in that initiation of movement, and I would feel things sort of suction in my upper neck, like kind of go... And when I'd come to rest my head back down, it would go away. And then every time I I could recreate it repetitively. And I would say that to them. I would say to them, it feels like something is just not connected. Mm. And they would dismiss it. I had x-rays. I had MRIs. I even had what would be termed uh, dynamic x-rays back in that day. That still currently to this day is the standard, which is basically they get you to flex your head down. They take a static x-ray snapshot. Mm. They get you to tilt your head back. (laughs) They take a static snapshot. And then they say, okay, well, in this one plane of motion, you don't have instability. And this is a common thing because the majority of people actually don't have instability in this plane. But there's two more planes of motion that need to be assessed. And in hearing how I portrayed my story to these clinicians, I wasn't telling them I was lifting my head forward and backwards. I was lifting it sideways. And so one would think, okay, let's try to recreate what this kid is telling us is giving him this weird sensation and see what we can find. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. When they send me for imaging, they assess a completely different plane in what they consider dynamic. And then the results come back as normal. And then you get dismissed as there's nothing wrong with you. But yet you still walk out of there going, well, why do I still feel this? Why do I still have these symptoms? And so when patients tell me this kind of stuff where they feel a clunk or a click or a shift or something like that, those are significant tip-offs to me that we're likely dealing with some level of instability and most other clinicians will just dismiss it as just some random thing a patient tells them. And this is one of those things that I think is of utter importance for clinicians to listen to and hone in on and go, what does that mean? And obviously that really, you know, resonates for me. And part of why we're connected is that it was a similar kind of thing around with some of the work I did in special education where kids with learning disabilities were often just not heard. Like, well, you've got a learning disability you know, you go to a special class and it's over there in another room or more related along with this topic of people who have these chronic cognitive issues and are told that nothing can change for you. And this is something I really admire about you. It's a sense of inquiry. It's a sense of, well, how do we know that? It's a sense of Carol Dweck, the growth mindset of maybe we do not yet know how to help you restore some 
of the lost function, but look at what they're doing over at iScope. Like, I mean, come on. (laughs) When there's a will, there's a way. And when there's focus, there's opportunity, I believe. And as long as we bring the right science along, it's pretty remarkable what can happen. And we see that around us all the time. The issue is maybe funding. It could be awareness. It could be self-protection. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but really leading into that, What are some of the things around this work? And I'll generalize it out to really brain health or brain enhancement or the title of the podcast, Brain Mastery, that really frustrate you. Well, what frustrates me is the main thing that frustrates me is watching patients go through this because, you know, as you mentioned from the outset here, I'm a chiropractor. And so within the realm of higher caliber medicine, the systems globally have been implemented to deal with and proceed with helping people mainly in the mainstream. And so neurologists, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, pain management doctors, physiatrists, anesthesiologists. So these are all individuals that my patients go to see after they've obtained diagnostic information from me that as they leave my office has changed their life because they've been seeking sometimes for you know up to 20 years for this answer for an answer that explains what they've been living with. And they walk out with a new sense of purpose and information that they feel is credible and useful and that something should be done with it. And they end up following up because that's just how the system is geared with a mainstream medical professional that either dismisses the information that they're telling them as, well, this kind of stuff doesn't exist. Instability only comes from fractures and dislocations and or this seems intriguing, but I don't know what to do with it. It's not mm-hmm. something that our scope or our protocols or our toolbox here, wherever we are, is capable of triaging. And right. whether that's because it's a liability to do something that hasn't been worked on and policies haven't been put in place and systems haven't been created to deal with these types of things, or whether they're just too busy dealing with what they know how to deal with, that having to learn something new is not something that tickles their fancy. And it's not so much that it doesn't tickle their fancy. It's just that they don't have the time or the resources for it to tickle their fancy. But that said, thankfully, and it's been you know a 10-year process in the making, I'm starting to see a lot more where I'm actually having neurosurgeons refer patients to me for imaging with the quandary, mm-hmm. you know, assessment conducted, imaging has been made, and we feel because of the results being ambiguous or non-forthwith, so they haven't resulted in any diagnostic prowess, they say, well, maybe there's instability here. Mm. And so they're starting to refer patients to have instability assessed or stability assessed. But at the same time, when the answer comes back, they're still hand-tied because they're not sure what to do with it. And so the patients get put back in the same circle of triage that isn't the best circle of triage for these types of problems. And so then the hardest part for me is seeing the disappointments in something that I believe is such a simple pathology, A, to diagnose, and then B, if not conservatively manageable, Mm -hmm. that there are surgical options and unfortunately not in Canada yet to deal with these things where, you know, the turnaround is quite miraculous for patients. Once you stabilize an unstable upper cervical spine and they no longer have mild, low-grade brainstem compression, how the whole gamut of neurological dysfunction can literally resolve from the moment that they're actually recovering post-op and remain that way for now in some of the cases that we've had for well over two years. And so 
that's something that should perk up the interest of Canadian neurosurgeons because there is an absolute gap in the market, if you will, for this type of triage. And if I had the time and the capacity, I'd probably go back and become a neurosurgeon right now to be able to do this because I think it's so dramatic the mm. the effect that this can have on people's lives but at the same time there's also a need for the ability to diagnose these things and refer on to gifted hands to be able to to deal yeah. with this stuff well and i think you know it's living to purpose i've always been one that believes that you will be presented with what you can handle whether you choose to take on that well that's up to you yeah. um but if that problem is sitting in front of you and it's left unsolved and you're willing to put in some of the grit and resilience to try and further inform how to address that issue. It, it sounds like you're just doing that. And the other folks will come along in time. And surely some things will change and be adapted and improved along the way. And that's also really, I think that's something I like about you. It's really exciting because no one has all the answers. And if we did, it wouldn't be nearly as challenging or nearly as fun because we get to learn along the way. And that's something that reminds me of a story. I'll never forget this one particular meeting where I was meeting with a big hospital system, director of a hospital in the United States. And we were working with an individual who had seen many professionals, had had a major, like we're talking Glasgow Coma 3, like pretty significant TBI, hit by a drunk driver in a crosswalk is an awful story. Craniotomy, the whole, the whole thing. And an amazing family, great guy, had made a pretty strong physical recovery under the circumstances and continued to struggle significantly with some of the higher order cognitive stuff. I put every kind of challenge I could in front of them. I wanted referrals from his chiropractor, was one of their primary docs, working with him, GP, neurologist, everybody. And they liked the idea of doing some of the non-invasive cog stim stuff that we do, which is only, again, one piece of what is a very complex puzzle. And I remember presenting some of his data pre-post to this head of a hospital, and he happens to be a neurosurgeon. And I said that here's how he presented at the start, and here's where he's currently at based on assessment. And I said, well, if we could extend the continuum of care from injury, inpatient, surgery, post-op, outpatient, to community, and strengthen that connection, wouldn't that improve your post-neurosurgical outcomes? Got quiet pretty quick. And it was amazing because I get the opportunity to learn from people like yourself. And it was one of those moments that's in the East Coast and he's one of those real blunt type guys. And so he kind of came at me real hard and I came right back at him real hard. <laughs> and I think he respected me more for it. It's just more informed choice and options for people that are otherwise relatively safe. And I think we have a responsibility to investigate those sorts of options more thoroughly. It is definitely an obligation if you know certain technology exists or a certain means exists that could better delineate what's going on with a patient, especially from the standpoint of physicians and clinicians, then it's technically negligent by not pursuing that avenue or that thread to its closure. And so the diagnostic capacity out there is so incredible and the technology yeah. is so advanced and the capacity to tweak the technology. This is kind of another one of my frustrations is that mm. I will refer patients for private MRIs to further assess what we found with the motion x-ray. And I will ask the facility to do certain positional sequences. So instead of a neutral stationary, you know, anatomic neutral positioning, I'll say, well, let's turn their head to the left. So many degrees, let's turn their head to the right. So many degrees. And then let's run the sequencing as well. And then let's tilt their head. 
And let's tilt their head to the other side and run the sequencing so that you're actually stressing or straining these ligamentous tissue groups to try to delineate whether or not you can actually see a needle in a haystack or a diamond in the rough. Because when you're an anatomic neutral, oftentimes there's such a blend of tissues that when you are able to stress those tissues in the opposite direction of their tensile resistance, things show up on occasion that normally would never have shown up. But the the kickback that I get is that, you know, their coils in their MRI are not able to manage these types of positions. And if I tell you some of the imaging studies that I've seen out of countries like Spain and Germany, when, when patients from all over the world send me their imaging to assess, and Australia even, I mean, they've done sequences from flexion to extension in MRI in these same coils to side tilts to half rotations with bends. I mean, everything under the sun, you can think that the head and neck can do. They've done sequences using MRI with the exact same coils they have locally here that they claim they're not able to do it. And I know that the disconnect is that they don't have anybody neuroradiologically here locally that can report on it. And so if they conduct it, they're responsible for reporting on it. And I think that's another unfortunate thing we have here in Canada is that the neuroradiologists that would be assessing head MRIs or cervical spine MRIs are not trained and have no knowledge in the craniocervical junction other than that there is a craniocervical junction and that it's not dislocated or there's not a gross accumulation of excess liquid there or fluid there that they can say looks inflammatory. And so outside of that, and not to mention that the normal protocol for a cervical spine MRI omits the upper cervical spine on the axials and they don't even bother doing coronals. So only on the sagittal will you see the craniocervical junction And then when they do a brain MRI, they always generally by default skip the craniocervical junction. So this golden area that I find tends to be the missing link in all these cases, unless specifically requested to be imaged in all three planes in a neck MRI, actually two to three planes, they omit it. And one plane of view, they don't even bother doing in general as a standard anyway. And so most people don't know that, even most clinicians don't know that, that refer a patient for a neck MRI, you know, they get the report back and they don't realize that that neck MRI has only conducted sagittals and axials and the axials start at C2 and work their way down because they're looking at the discs and they completely omit the skull and C1 in connection between C1 and C2. Question, question here. How important is perspective? That's everything everything. And that's a theme that I'm hearing for the people listening here today, keeping in mind, these can be people, maybe they're aspiring chiropractors young in their career. Maybe it's a PT who's starting to wonder about this one particular treatment. And why is that just not healing the right way? (laughs) Everything seemed to be proper. (laughs) You know, maybe it's a neurologist who's saying that report just doesn't quite, I mean, I could, it could be this, but it, Something's telling me maybe it's not. I urge you to really think about perspective here because this is what, you know, Sasha is speaking to is that sometimes I think we have to acknowledge we don't know what we don't know. And actually, we respect people who can acknowledge that, who can say, actually, from what I have access to, it seems to be this from what I can tell. However, I'm interested to see if maybe there's another perspective that we could take a closer look at to better understand what might be going on here. And that's the encouragement. You know, listen to Sasha here. He's not saying, I have the only way to do this. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there seems to be a problem that's not being addressed very well in some ways, in particular cases. And by applying significant academic and clinical rigor, we have found that actually (laughs) we have the opportunity to get a newer, more accurate functional diagnosis, and then actually deploy appropriate treatments 
to help that individual to live a better quality of life. So perspective is key. Absolutely. I mean, that's what should be every clinician's goal is to firm up as precisely and specifically as they can what the actual diagnosis is. So as I mentioned earlier, we discussed the diagnosis, if you will, of dysautonomia, or there's the diagnosis of POTS, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, just to name a few. And these four diagnoses that I mentioned kind of relate to the same phenomenon. And all four of those diagnoses don't actually tell you what the causative agent is of those symptoms. They just describe the symptoms. So dysautonomia tells you there's autonomic nervous system malfunctioning. POTS tells you that when a person's upright, their heart flutters, right? Myalgic encephalomyelitis says there's something going on with the muscles and the nervous tissue that is causing this global pathology. And then chronic fatigue speaks for itself. But with all those groups of patients to think and draw back and say, is the potential actual diagnosis for the majority of these patients, for example, ALAR ligament or transverse ligament sprain, grade two permanent ligament sprain with resultant hypermobility or instability and mild recurrent brainstem compression or cervical medullary compression leading to the manifestation of what we've called POTS or what we've called dysautonomia right. or what we've called ME or what we've called CFS. And I think that's what needs to start happening more is an actual specific diagnosis, right? So someone goes and has an injury, they go for x-rays, they're like, you fractured the distal lateral end of your fibula, whatever distance superior to the lateral malleolus, that's your diagnosis. Your diagnosis is not ankle sprain and pain. You've done imaging, you've narrowed down the exact thing. And then you're like, we either cast this and leave it, or we pin it and plate it, or screw it and plate it. What are we going to do with this? But at least you know what your actual diagnosis is. Instead of going, this person's presenting with ankle pain, therefore the diagnosis is going to be lateral ankle pain. It can be a lot more precise than lateral ankle pain, just like it can be a lot more precise than dysautonomia. And well, and then that can target the treatment, obviously, right? Then, is it, yeah. And once you have the actual specific diagnosis hammered down, then you have options love instead it. of just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that so much. And I think it's so needed. When you think about this work that you're in, highly specialized work, is there maybe one or two influences that really help to shape you? Because we have a very curious audience here who's mm -hmm. always interested in what motivates people. And I personally, I'm always interested in what motivates people. So was there maybe one or two influences? These could be papers, these could be people, these could be practices. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I would say my number one would be Dr. Raymond Nimmo. And that's a name that most people haven't heard of, but I'll explain the background behind that. When I was first having my headache, nausea, cognitive irritability, forgetfulness symptoms in the years following my so-called concussion. I was in chiropractic school and I had one of our junior clinician professors who worked in the junior clinic where we literally just treat each other. Mm -hmm. And then there's a senior clinic where you actually treat people from the community. And I was having a brutal headache. I couldn't concentrate on studying for my exams. And I went into the junior clinic and it was at lunchtime. So there were no students there. And so this lady who was my clinician assessed me, I explained to her my background and she said, well, let me try something. Cause I explained to her that every time I would get chiropractically manipulated, it would maybe feel like pretty darn good for maybe five minutes. And then I would actually get this flush of worsening only to stabilize back to where it was. And I'd have to ride it out every time. She's like, let me try something. So she did basically what boils down to acupressure on me. Mm. She chose specific muscles at the upper part of my neck, just underneath my skull. And she pressed and held. And for the first time at that given time in seven years, 
I had actual relief of my symptoms to the point where I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience that this can't actually be real. Because when I left her, I still had a headache. I still kind of felt miserable. But within a half hour of leaving, I actually felt my headache leaving my body like it was some kind of a weird spirit. My eyes started clearing, my anger started reducing, and I started being able to, I had more energy. I was able to concentrate and multitask. And that got me to, you know, thinking, you know, what is this? And so she told me a little bit more about it. And, you know, they kind of touched upon it in our chiropractic school. And it's basically Dr. Raymond Nemo was a pioneer back in the 1930s who discerned for himself that you can have vertebrae out of alignment And in his mind, there was something that governed that, and that was basically the neuromuscular system. So the nerves sense malposition, they send signals to muscles that are supposed to then try to right wrongs. And when doing that for a prolonged period of time in an area that is susceptible to it or has been injured or what have you, these muscles develop trigger points. And these trigger points then become dysfunctional Mm. and rigid tissue sources that then create subluxations or malpositions of the spine. And so if you just, you know, hammer a spine back into alignment, the likelihood that it's going to misalign relatively quickly is pretty high. And he noted that as an observation and said, I'm going to start doing acupressure or sustained pressure on these trigger points to try to basically release and reset their functionality. And he wrote a bunch of papers back then that have now, in the meantime, become scientifically proven as to how, you know, alpha motor neurons and gamma motor neurons and all these different pathways into the spinal cord and into the central nervous system govern this whole phenomenon. And I started tinkering with this when I first graduated on my own patients who had headaches just like me and started getting results that baffled me. And some of these patients would come in and they'd have 20 years standing of dizziness and headaches. And Mm. I would, you know, torture them. And I became known as the torturer, but yet they would leave and come back and say, for the first time in 20 years, I didn't have a headache this entire week. I felt more energetic. And so I started delving more into it and going deeper into it and trying it more on patients and then trying to discern how this relates to me. And then eventually I discovered that motion x-ray existed. And I said, this seems very logical and I should go have it done on myself to see what's going on because I always had the suspicion that my spine was unstable, you know, my upper neck. And lo and behold, I had the imaging done and all my answers happened right there in 15 minutes. Everything that I've been living with at that time for about 12 years came to a close and I knew exactly what my problem was. And I was so excited about it. I said, I got to have one of these machines and I got to start using this on my patients because my explanation to them using models and fingers and gestures was like a deer in headlights in some of these cases where it would just go right over their heads and they wouldn't understand it, but I needed them to understand it. And I felt that visibly showing them by way of imaging would be that missing link for them. And thankfully it has. And so since then, I've been basically utilizing this NIMO technique on all my patients that have these problems and some can take it really well and other ones can't. And so it's not for everybody. And I think there's multiple reasons as to why it's not for everybody. I think the education as to you know what it is, how it works and what you can expect from it and that it's not pleasure treatment. As soon as a person can wrap their brain around that, I think they're more apt at accepting that treatment modality and hopefully experiencing the positive results of that. So Dr. Nimmo is by far the most, awesome. able. I've never met him. I've studied directly from his understudies. So Sheila Laws, we unfortunately lost her last year at 85, I think she mm. was. So I directly learned from Sheila and then her understudy now is Cindy Puent. She's in Wisconsin. So she's carrying on that torch and still teaching uh, NIMO at some of the chiropractic colleges. And so it's a very proficient, very effective, highly under-serviced modality. And it's actually what active release technique uh, got its Mm. foundation from. Interesting. There's a lot of chiropractors and a lot of clinicians and athletes and people, patients out there around the globe who have heard of ART. Yeah. 
And ART got its origins from the basis of Neuralink. Interesting. And so I uh, did it's, not it's know very that. effective. Yeah, it's very yeah. effective. It's very easy to do. It's just that it still requires knowing precisely where you're going to perform the NIMO. And this is where the imaging comes into play because you can have areas of referral that aren't the actual cause of the problem. So you can treat more and have less effect versus when you have the pinpointed diagnosis and treat less and have much more effect. Got it. That makes That's sense. A, oh, it makes perfect sense. So I want to be respectful of your time. You've shared a lot of it with us and I'm grateful, but I'm curious, just a couple last quick things just to tie this up. If given the work that you've been committing your life to, I'm sure you've got a very understanding family because you're so passionate, you're running clinics in Canada and into the United States. What's your hope for the future in this work in the world of brain health and brain mastery? What are you hoping the future brings? I hope it brings what it's slowly been starting to morph into over the last 10 years, more recognition of the notion that there is more to TBI, MTBI than just the brain and the skull. And for clinicians to start perking up and releasing quandaries as to, is there something going on in this person's neck as well that Mm -hmm. could be co-contributing to this problem? And then starting to open their minds and their eyes to actually having patients assessed in this way so that we're all starting to get on the same page that there's more to it than just the brain and there's more to it than just the neck because this isn't always the answer. But I'd venture to say that where the brain has been dissected in 15 different ways with all sorts of different imaging modalities, mapping and testing, but it hasn't resulted in that aha moment that this is probably the number one second place to go to is assessing what's happening with the upper neck. And that in most of these cases I've found has been the missing link. And once you know that, you can start moving in a direction where, and we discussed this offline, but this region, when it's bottleneck, it affects functioning within the brain. Mm. So cognition, multitasking, memory, all these things are affected. And I'm not saying that's the exclusive thing that affects the brain-related functions. Yeah, I know, I know. But it has an absolute influence on brain functioning. Again, to exactly what you've been saying is your perspective, but also getting a good, comprehensive, proper assessment, right? And I mean, that's something that I think everybody deserves. the best assessment they can get. They do. And I I hope this uh, opens up the channels for clinicians to start at least considering utilizing this as a means of additional assessment of their, you know, even if they just start with their difficult patients that they're just really beating their head up against the wall with going, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on with this person. Mm -hmm. There's something going on. If they start there and then the results follow suit. I mean, I think there are a lot more patients out there that aren't the sort of obvious ones, but that are more of the subtle ones that they'll start wanting to get those assessed as well. And, you know, and I can assess them in Washington. I can assess them in British Columbia. It's a really easy imaging study to conduct, generate a written color report with pictures embedded in it for the patient, their doctor, family members, whoever needs to look at it to be able to make sense of it. Because there's text explanation that refers then to images that are embedded in the report so that a person can see what those explanations refer to in image format. And it usually makes a lot of sense to most people and it just ties things together and is usually helpful in the sense that at least for the patient themselves, it brings them closure as to finally getting information that is of some kind of tangible use. Mm-hmm. And then the next part of that is the prayer is that mainstream clinicians that should be able to do something with this information, either from a surgical standpoint or a further non-conservative standpoint, that they start taking notice and start wanting to learn more about what Great. can we do. Now, for people that are out there, they've listened to this now, they're really honed in saying, hmm, my perspective isn't quite full here. 
I need to start looking at different places and want to better understand how do people get a hold of you? Where can they learn more about your work and how do they reach you? There's two ways. There's the contact thing on uh, www.whiplashclinic.com. That's one place. And then for my international patients that don't actually have the ability to travel to see me, if they have imaging and uh, whatnot that they want assessed with a second set of eyes, it's Dr. Blaskovich. So D-R-B-L-A-S-K-O-V-I-C-H.com. And there's a platform there for communicating as well. Those are probably the two easiest ways. And obviously the Whiplash Clinic website has direct phone numbers to both clinics where myself or our staff of can, can of respond. Course. And those will all be right in the show notes. So you can just click to them for our listeners today. So Dr. B, I want to thank you again for all the time that you put into this. And outside of that, what I really want to acknowledge you for is your commitment to helping the next generation of people that are struggling with things that you struggled with. And that you know, that's something that I really relate to as well and, and appreciate. So thank you again for being on and maybe we'll do this again sometime real soon. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing. If you want to put into the show notes, a link to the lecture that I did to the Swedish neurosurgeons, I totally. think it's, it's such a hard concept to understand. You know, I'm a chiropractor, so people have a preconceived notion of what chiropractors do, but what I do is nothing like what a chiropractor does. It's, it's such a, anomalous tangent that I've went on that you can't even call it chiropractic really. And I think the lecture definitely portrays all the different components and aspects of what is possible and how to work up these patients that are dealing with these things and how that can portray. And obviously there's the three case studies that I did there as well. Absolutely. We'll be sure to put that into the show notes for sure. That's a great idea. And we'll do that. I've watched it myself. It's quite remarkable. So I will make sure that that is in the notes and clickable. And again, thank you so, so much for your time and keep doing, keep changing lives, man. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery Podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Our training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the BEARS platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the BEARS platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The BEARS platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. 
please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.